0: LT, my friend, it's almost upon us. The last ever Wellness Summit in Melbourne.
1: The last one ever?
0: Well, definitely the last one for at least two years, LT. That's right, this year's Wellness Summit will be the last one for the foreseeable future in Melbourne. It will be the biggest, the greatest, the most inspiring, the most empowering summit that you've ever seen. The last one in Melbourne? That's right, LT. That's ridiculous. I can't believe my ears. But I guess if that's the case, then let's go to thewellnesssummit.com. If you want to enter the code Melbourne 16 that's Melbourne 16 to get $100 off your regular price tickets, you get to enjoy two days of food, movement, and mindset on September 10th and 11th at the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre. Hey, OT, did we say it's the last one? It's the last in one Melbourne. in Melbourne. Oh, good. All right. I'm glad we told them. Hey, go to www.thewellnesssummit.com, enter those codes, it's save some money, see you at the summit.
1: Thewellnesscoach.com,
2: streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to Backchat. Exploring the five pillars of health with Dr. Paul Bergamo and Dr. Anthony Coxon. Welcome to BackChat. My name is Paul Bergamo and it's great to be here on our next podcast. BackChat is about being your best. It does this by exploring the five pillars of health. It refers to being your best in thinking, moving, sleeping and also in your neurology. Today's Back Chat will cover the pillar of... Well, what's the pillar going to be, Anthony?
0: Well, I'd say, let's see, it's a bit of a blur, this one. Let, let's call it neurology, but it could be a whole lot of stuff, I reckon. Absolutely. And I've already introduced him, Anthony Coxon. How are you going, Anthony? Very well, Paul Gamo, Excellent. Very good. So today's topic, which is a little hard to, you know, squeeze into just one of our pillars there, but it's basically looking after people who have more complex issues, you know, more mm. severe chronic pain, Uh, They may see a chiropractor, uh, but these are often people who need a multidisciplinary approach and collaboration with uh, general practitioners or pain specialists. Uh, People know a little bit about medication, which we try and get everyone off whenever we can, but clearly there is a need for this kind of thing, and it's uh, important for people to understand what their options are. And
2: we're very lucky to have Dr. Terence Heng, who's a GP and chiropractor. So both Anthony, we've got GP NBD and, and chiropractor here. Both the boxes. Practicing in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, involved in also the APRA panel boards, as well as the GP registrar examinations, GP supervisor, and medical student teaching. Terence has special interests in musculoskeletal medicine, skin cancer, and urgent care medicine. Other roles include surgical assisting in a variety of specialties, including orthopaedics and general surgery, locum ED doctor for small country hospitals. And would you believe he also finds time to do some occasional casual lecture at RMIT University? He's a busy guy. He's a very busy guy. Hi, Terence. How are you going?
1: I'm good, guys. Thanks for inviting me to the chat.
2: Oh, thank
0: you so much for, for joining us. Now, the, it's you are a little bit of a rare breed. We, we've just gone through and rattled off a few others that we know, but there's not a lot of people who have a, a chiropractic degree and a medical degree. Tell us, how did this all happen?
1: Um, it happened about maybe second or third year of chiropractic school, I realized that um, there was a lot of interest or a lot of information about uh, medical knowledge and the diagnosis and management of things, but we never really got to uh, sort of encounter that. And my dad was a GP, and uh, I often followed him to work sometimes, and I was always interested in medicine. And so I think sort of midway through, I realized that I wanted to do medicine so that I could see and sort of uh, feel this way through in this field as well and to combine the two because I felt the two had really good sort of uh, things to produce and to help the community with but um, just one on its own was never really quite enough so I was lucky to get to medicine after a bit of study and uh, complete it.
2: So that makes sense regards eventually perhaps going to medicine, Terence, given now that we understand your dad was a GP but how did you get to chiropractic first? What was the, what was the trigger there?
1: Uh, well, the, the, to be honest, the trigger was not getting to medicine the first time round. Um what happened was I tried for med- medical school but I was quite playful when I was in that year twelve equivalent stage and so didn't quite make the grade. And uh my family aunt actually introduced me to a chiropractor in Singapore and it was an a fantastic experience and he uh taught me pretty much what I know about chiropractic as well and got me interested and I applied for it, much to the sort of uh dismay of my father, I think, at the time. Mm. But uh what happened was he slipped his back, I think, at some stage in my career of chiropractic study and uh, went to see a chiropractor because he thought it might be a good idea since his son was studying it. And uh, he got better within a few treatments. And he said, you know, there's no drug that can you know, give him that sort of relief, the patient that sort of relief. So he was a believer after that.
0: All uh, right. So you even managed to convince your father that, uh, that chiropractic is helpful. That's, that was good. Uh, yeah. So-
1: he can imagine his uh, dismay when he said, I was going to be a GP after that.
0: Oh, very good. <laughs> How did you? So you've gone. You, you've uh, finished your chiropractic degree. I'm assuming you've practiced a little while for a chiropractic as a chiropractor before you then went into medicine.
1: Correct. I did uh, one and a half years full time as I prepared for the uh, entry into the medical school.
0: And, and so, and you continued to practice chiropractic while you were studying medicine.
1: That's right. I uh, had to support myself, and uh, chiropractic made it a, a very nice little uh, sort of profession I could do at part time and. So, balance of medical school and the
0: hospital rotations. It's not a bad part-time job, after all, is it? That's and what great. I love, and what oh, I love right.
2: about Terence is he still incorporates chiropractic as well. That, that's correct, isn't it, Terrence?
0: That's right.
1: So, uh, we're needed, and um, depending on the case by case basis, if I need to do chiropractic adjustments or anything else I like, um, I would do it in the clinic rooms, and you know, it would be part of my treatment regimen because you can't really divorce the two minds together. It's impossible.
2: I'm not sure if you know many chiros who have done medicine, but the ones I do know have often not come back to chiro at all. You know, it's moved into medicine and chiropractic is historical. It's not part of their, their careers going forward. So, it's really nice to have uh, Terence who actually still puts back into chiropractic as well as doing uh, his medicine too.
0: Absolutely. Now, our conversation tonight is, uh, is about sort of uh, uh, pain and chronic pain. Um, and, and so maybe let's just uh, define some terms that will make these conversations going forward a little, bit, um, a little bit easier. Neuropathic pain versus musculoskeletal pain. What, what's the difference?
1: Um, I guess if you ask about... Musculoskeletal pain. I think that's what the public most uh, recognises chiropractors and physiotherapists, GPs for, and that's the type of pain you get with the back aches, the sprained ankles, the sore knees when you go up and down the stairs. Aging process. That's the pain where it can be sharp, it can be aching. It's usually an activity-related pain, and it comes from you know fairly consistent diagnoses like osteoarthritis, or sprain, or strain, or slip disc. Something you can sort of pin your your finger onto and uh, say this is a musculoskeletal component and that's what we're, we're probably most uh, encountering the public with most of the time whereas neuropathic pain is a very unusual type of pain process and I think um, very sure the chiropractors physiotherapists and the GPs are very, very well aware of it so it's, it's a pain where the nerve fibers actually become hypersensitized and get very irritable and fire off pain signals and so the pain is often quite a a very vague-sounding, bizarre-type-sounding pain. And it could be anywhere from chronic uh, complex pain syndromes to shooting and burning-type pains. And associated often with other diseases like diabetes, alcoholism, or multiple sclerosis, all of which affect the nerve function. So something that affects the nerves long-term are more likely to give uh, neuropathic-type pains. And the most classical one I think a lot of people hear about is uh, phantom limb pain, where uh, pain is felt after the you know, a foot is taken off and, or amputated and the, the patient still complains that the foot is there and hurts and burns. So that's what it is and that's a very hard um, sort of pain to treat.
0: And so just for, to, to expand on that a little bit and so for our back chat listeners, the, uh, a musculoskeletal pain, is that more likely to be a, um, a local tissue source as opposed to a neuropathic pain which is more of a, a central brain or, or some part of the nervous system source?
1: Yes, it is, and it also depends on whether the pain, the duration of the pain, length of time. If the pain has been a short term, so if you bend down, pick up a pot, and you have back pain, up that sudden pain in your back, that's probably going to be a localized uh, source of pain, being the ligaments, muscles, or tissues, or joint capsules around the area where the pain source will be. Um, whereas, as you mentioned, neuropathic pain is going to involve a lot more areas, including the ascending uh, tracks to the brain. And that can be very difficult to manage.
0: And so, are they? Uh, is there a crossover sometimes between the two, like in a musculoskeletal problem that becomes chronic, then develop neuropathic consequences, or is it typically something that starts just as one or the other?
1: Um, typically, you would in, in our settings where we would see them is that they would start off with a musculoskeletal insult. So whether it be a slip disc, and once you have a a significant injury like that, the nerves become sensitized over a period of time, whether it be six weeks to 12 weeks, and it can morph into a sort of more complex uh, neuropathic pain. You have a mixture of things because the initial injury to the structure, say the disc, has now settled down over the course of six to 12 weeks, and you're left with a very um, neuropathic type pain and dysfunction that occurs with it as well. There may be an element of um, musculoskeletal pain that goes with it because things can get destabilized and uh, joints can become old. So that can be, a comp- can be a component of mechanical pain as well. So it is hard to sometimes figure out which is the player in this case.
2: So Terence, we move perhaps from the diagnostic end maybe more to the treatment end. If we, mm-hmm. say from a cardiomy perspective, we, we use our hands and then we may use some natural supple- supplementation And from a medical GP perspective, there will be pharmaceutical options and different classes of drugs that you could use. Can you explain to our back chat listeners some of these concepts?
1: Yeah. So I guess um, when you talk about natural versus pharmaceuticals, um, what we would understand mainly is that the natural treatments tend to be more, in fact, safer usually. They can be reproducible to some extent and they can be um, repeated without any fear of any sort of side effects or tolerance or complications, um, far better to use a natural technique if you can use it uh, effectively. And uh, in terms of the natural therapies you have, as you mentioned, the physios, chiros, and um, osteopaths tend to be very good at choosing different types of physical modalities, whether it be stretching, strengthening, spinal manipulation or adjustments. You can, you can use physical therapies like ultrasound, interferential therapies or TENS machines. You can also use counselling techniques to help the patient deal with the pain, such as CBT or cognitive behavioural therapy or relaxation techniques, or such things like acupuncture or dry needling, and they all help. Whereas from a GP standpoint, medical doctor standpoint, we tend to prescribe medications for more severe pain. And because of the severity of pain and the nature of the medication we use, Uh, You can often get side effects as well. And those classes of drugs range from simple Panadol to anti-inflammatories to opiate-like drugs like Tremadol, steroids or opiates, and even using drugs that modify uh, nerve function. So that can be used as well.
0: You mentioned when you were um, listing off a lot of the natural approaches there—chiropractic, ch- physiotherapy, osteopathy, and so on. Um, a lot of them were sort of, I guess, um, hands-on treatment modalities or, or, or using um, things such as acupuncture, etc. Is there a role for uh, supplementation with sort of you know herbal medicines or things of that nature, or? or is this the sort of pain, when especially we're talking about neuropathic, that has a severity that those things are not so helpful for?
1: It really depends on a case-by-case basis, I guess. In uh, the severity of the pain, if the pain is very severe, you'll find that the natural therapies will not be enough to give comfort or relief, um, but it can be used to supplement and augment the medical therapies that are being used. So it really is a hard one to say because it really depends on a case-by-case basis what the patient's uh, issues are, and whether we use it. So, for example, using glucosamine and chondroitin for osteoarthritis, the evidence is there from one or two studies, but there's a lot of studies that say it may not work. But I think it's very hard to say what those uh, conditions would work for, and therefore, you know, we still recommend it as part of the treatment for osteoarthritis. But we can say that. probably going to work better for knee arthritis versus neck arthritis for example
0: yeah and how does so? Let's p- put, take this into the um, uh, into the real world, and, and in particular, in terms of the patient that's in front of you. When, and I know this is ah uh, difficult to generalise here, but when do you are you thinking? Okay, this is a person that um, I'm going to apply some uh, chiropractic care, or, or a mode of uh, a trial of care under chiropractic, or maybe refer them to a, to a chiropractor, or. When do you think, oh, no, this is someone who requires a, a pharmaceutical approach or are you doing both often?
1: I think in, when I see the patient, often I am thinking in both mindsets. And when I think of uh, a musculoskeletal therapist, like a chiropractor, physio or osteopath, what I'm doing is I'm thinking, is this pain a mechanical pain where these guys can give me a hand with strengthening the, the particular structure? be it the back or the elbow and I think in a lot of musculoskeletal pain there is a role for this and it boils down to the diagnosis of the condition it also boils down to the patient preference of who they prefer to see what they prefer to do because patients are allowed to choose as well and also depends on the availability and um, other things like finances the financial situation of the patient so there are a number of things that go into my mind about whether I'm going to choose one modality versus another. But certainly, if they're in a lot of discomfort or pain, I think they're asking, they come to me generally for pain relief, and I would have to bring that up as an option for them as well. But if they say, no, doctor, I don't want to have this medication, then I would say, okay, well, there's an option for you to try other things. So, for example, turmeric for um, an anti-inflammatory effect for knee arthritis, very useful, quite helpful, and I've had a few good cases that responded quite nicely to it.
2: It's interesting, Terence regards you know the training and the upgrade of training for for knowledge with these with these sort of natural supplements. Do you get much of that from different sources, or is it your own personal reading that sort of brings you up to know that yeah, the studies for arth- osteoarthritis is glucosamine, and to know that turmeric is good for anti-inflammatory. Because a lot of GPs wouldn't be aware of that, I'd imagine.
1: Um, I think the GPs. If they're honest and if, if they look carefully, I think the opportunity to encounter this information is out there, and it, com- it comes mainly through patients' word of mouth. In other words, they come in and say, "What do you think about this, um, this particular therapy?" Let's just talk about, you know, turmeric. And if they say, "What do you think about turmeric?" and I would start by saying, "Hmm, I actually don't know much about turmeric as an anti-inflammatory. I'm going to look it up," and that's when I go into our Cochrane libraries or PubMed, and we start looking for the evidence for it, and we start reading, you know, on different levels of evidence, and you say, okay, what? How does it propose to work, and whether I can use it safely in this setting? But um, that's generally how it is. You know, patients come in, or you hear about these things, and you wonder because it relates to your practice whether it actually will work, rather than say, oh no, this is all you know, snake oil. It's not going to work at all.
2: And I suppose then you know then you've got extra layers, haven't you? Because then if there are other medicines as well, then you look at drug nutrient interactions, and I suppose from those sort of investigations you, you establish whether it's going to be sort of contraindications between a drug and a nutrient, or how, how, how do you perceive that?
1: Yep. So if you look at the medications versus the nutritional supplements, it's actually very little, um, little interaction, drug drug interaction, I guess if you want to call it that. So this is very rare that we would see a medication cause sorry it's very rare that we would see a nutrient supplement cause a complication with medication occasionally we do, but it's pretty rare on the whole so i'm usually quite happy to recommend it because it's quite a safe thing and it's usually safe because it's out there' easily available.
0: It's one thing you're interesting, uh, Paul, that um, Terence was just talking about, how you might have a patient sort of spark your interest in something. And uh, I certainly that's yes. been my experience uh, over many years of practicing chiropractic that, um, yeah, I mean, there's Dr. Google out there for, for everyone. Um, so a patient might already be educated to some degree, uh, but especially when something new comes along, and I don't know exactly how long turmeric's been out there, but maybe I first heard about it. Eight years ago, yeah, would it be seven, maybe yeah, thereabouts, yeah, uh, where it became quite popular, and then, uh, and it's often through patient experience. Oh, like I tried this; it seemed to work for me. Or you know, they haven't tried it. Should should I try it? That's often what uh, I think a lot of practitioners learn that
2: way is through their what their patients are actually telling them. It's, yeah, that's right. It, it, and it's fairly experiential, I suppose, in that sense. I mean, unfortunately, we may not have rcts randomized controlled trial and, and all these sort of things but then i suppose empirically if we trial it for a short period of time terence and we find it there's efficacy from the patient's response i mean that's okay isn't it
1: oh that's definitely okay so long as the condition is it's a the seriousness of the condition versus what we're doing with it so for example if a Pain is from a cancer causing condition of the bone, yep. then it would be silly to just yep. try turmeric. So it really does depend on the case by case. But for the majority of cases where it's non life threatening, yep. you know, it's going to be a chronic problem like osteoarthritis, there's no harm in trying the least uh, side effects uh, option. And that would be a natural option. So you want to do that as your first line option.
2: What about uh, in your world of prescribing medications? What are some of the common pitfalls you find?
1: Uh, The common pitfalls I find with prescribing medication, one of them is actually not working out what the diagnosis is, and that can be because the patient comes to me in a sort of uh, inherited way. So they've seen other GPs, they come in and give me their shopping list of medications, and they go, this is what I'm on, and I kind of go, yep, that's fine, away we go. And uh, because of lack of time or lack of um, information that's available to me, I just move on with it. And then the sort of... um, doesn't quite click until a few months later and I go why are you taking this still you know you really need to be on an anti-inflammatory for this long given that you've got these other conditions and that's when you kind of look into it and so you look at the correct diagnosis first because if you have a good diagnosis it gives you a stepping stone for where to go off to launch your therapies. Um, Other things that sort of catch you are the side effects especially in certain specific groups and those groups are groups that are not able to tell you what's wrong with them. And particularly in our case, the, el- the elderly population or the aging population um, have difficulty communicating sometimes. You've got other special groups like the uh, intellectually disabled um, patients, and they have difficulty communicating. So side effects are often very hard to pin down with them, and efficacy for that matter. Uh, and the last one would be compliance, and compliance being from fears or lack of follow-up or Anything else um, where the patient's actually not taking the medication as prescribed, or sometimes even worse, overdoing, uh, overdosing on the medication—that's
2: an issue. How do you handle situations where patients do some doctor shopping? I mean, that must be—you you must have. You know, how do you how do you have a forensic lens to see that? What what sort of uh, red flags are there, are there for you when you, when uh, that arises?
1: Um, patients actually, as you mentioned, are very. Um, highly educated nowadays, and they come in often with a diagnosis or at least alluding to a diagnosis that they want you to sort of dig out from them or to ask them about. And so some of the ways I've found to help deal with the problem is to ask them, you know, what do you think it is? And they'll say, oh, I think it's this doctor. And I'll go, okay, how did you find that out? And they'll say, oh, I read it on the internet or I heard it from a friend. And then I'll go through the process of explaining to them what I think it is and whether it is you know, significantly related to what they think or whether it's not related to what they think and sort of justify why I think what it is. And if I need to, I'll pull up more information from uh, a computer database of, you know, what this condition I think it is, uh, should be and give it to them so they can have a read. So it is a very common uh, thing that we face. In fact, to be honest, it's just part of general practice that the patients come in knowing what they have or having an idea of what they have and uh, actually having an idea of how they want to be treated or having an idea of different options for treatment. So putting it in perspective, I think, is what the GP does. puts the condition into perspective and also puts the treatment into perspective for them.
0: I guess from uh, our perspective, Paul, as Mm. uh, in our training has been our modus operandi, natural, 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 and, you know, only if absolutely medication, and then only if that doesn't work, then, you know, more invasive mm. uh, procedures. I guess this is, um, you know, the challenge. We're obviously talking here about people who, um, who have some significant um, pain-related issues, uh, wherever that pain might be uh, coming from. Um, but some of the concerns that uh, that we have as chiropractors and that patients have um, when they're needing to take these sorts of medications or considering taking these uh, medications is balancing out the benefit with the risk, um, particularly in the case of the stronger medications. Um, now, Terence, in particular, the opioids, um, we know that they're addictive. We know that there's uh, a lot of people who have issues uh, with them. How do you manage uh, an opioid type medication in terms of suggesting someone starts on it, um, when do they need to get off it? What's the process there? Uh
1: the process for opioid medications can be quite straightforward sometimes. Uh depends on the pain findings. And for example, if you come and have a surgery for your gallbladder and you take it out, you're gonna be sore. You're gonna be very, very sore. And opioid pain medications are one of the best things for that sort of pain. But we use it for a very short term period maybe one or two weeks at the most and that gives you very good coverage at the start very good relief and you know the risk of addiction and tolerance is very rare so we don't worry about those things for that category of patients. For the patients with chronic back pain or chronic pain for that matter whether it be knee pain or back pain often the frustration for us is finding the medication that will work well for the patient and it's a two way street. The patient has to want to take the advice of the medication, what to take. And also I find that the patients don't tend to take the other bit of advice, which is the you might want to exercise, you might want to strengthen the back, you might want to do things. Yeah. Things are actually quite quite hard and require discipline as I'm sure all you guys know in terms of giving out prescription exercises, the compliance rate can be very low, particularly when the patient gets better. So that can be difficult. And using opioids in that setting is uh, a very risky thing, but sometimes we need to do it based on the nature of the pain. So it, is, it does come with a, a sort of a couple of risks and benefits. So it's a hard one, really.
0: Now, now, two questions I have following up, and I just realized that uh, I pro- we probably should uh, clarify for our back chat listeners what actually is an opioid?
1: An opioid is a type of medication that works on opiate receptors up in the brain. And it's a centrally-acting medication. In other words, it works on the brain, where the brain functions and the perception of pain occurs. And there are about three different receptors, I suspect. And uh, these receptors are also present in other places like your gut and other areas like, say, your sweat glands and other places where you can get side effects from them. Um, The most common side effect that you might get from an opioid will be, say, constipation. And that's because the receptors are also present in the gut. The nature of opioids are very powerful. They are also naturally occurring endogenous opioids, meaning that our body actually produces them in certain areas of the brain and in the spinal cord. And they're used for um, painkilling uh, and sort of euphoric purposes. So for example, if you um, sort of, you know, the classic crack your knuckle, twist your neck to get the relief, that releases endogenous opioids, makes you quite happy, relaxes your muscles. And it's generally a very pleasant feeling. So pain relief comes with Opioid use and also the euphoric effect, which is that double-edged sword of addiction, whether you get addicted mm. to that euphoric, happy, happy effects, so to speak.
0: Mm. And so, the examples of some opioid medications, and and what would an opioid look like? Say, for example, as a street drug.
1: Yes, um, the classic one that everybody knows about, I think, is morphine, and you would see that in you know movies. You can see that in a lot of movies and. In the natural sort of occurring world, the most common time we see it being used is in childbirth. Sometimes we use pethidine, and uh, that's it's a very powerful drug. It's given as injection, can be given as a pill. Most of the pills, the opioid-like pills, metabolize to a form of morphine in the end. And so, the classic ones that we use very commonly, everybody knows, penadine, which has codeine. And panadine 4, which is prescription only, has a stronger amounts of codeine. And it, again, metabolizes into a morphine product that's taken up by the brain. And other forms of it will be Oxycontin, uh, Endone is another common short-acting opioid. And these are the common ones that a GP or specialist would use in certain situations. And there are a few opioid-like drugs, like Tremadol, which we use with not as addictive, and don't have as many side effects. But essentially, they all act on very similar receptors in the brain and cause a very similar effect.
0: So obviously these types of medications are only going to be used under very sort of strict circumstances and under the guidance of uh, a a medical doctor such as yourself. You mentioned about constipation as being a potential short-term side effect what are the longer-term side effects of medication and, and how do you go about helping someone who maybe has some, um, is experiencing these sorts of long-term side effects or, or clearly is developing a, an addictive sort of problem?
1: Mm. Very difficult question, uh, very, very difficult uh, situation actually. The constipative effects can be long-term and often are and the only way around them is to decrease the dose at the expense of having more pain perceptions. Or you could also just treat the constipation with laxatives, which long-term can also bring their own problems. But generally, that's what we do. We treat the constipation with a laxative. The, lexative. the uh, long-term issues with opioids, uh, from our perspective, the biggest problem would be addiction and tolerance. And addiction meaning yes, it's sort of drug-seeking behavior to get more and more uh, for the same desired effect. So, for example, it used to be endone, Endone being a 5-milligram tablet. Once you could take one tablet and, you know, three months later you're taking two tablets to get the same desired effect. And that brings into effect uh, the tolerance effect. So you need more and more of the drug to get the same effect. The addiction issues when they start behaving in a way that they start seeking that drug more and more. So they might uh, end up buying it or seeking it elsewhere from, you know, the black market or some other places where they need more and more of this drug to get the, the sort of effect that they're looking for. So addiction and tolerance are very similar in a sense, addiction being the sort of drug-seeking nature and being addicted needing it to have daily function, for example, whereas tolerance is the drug actually losing its potency and you more, which happens with long-term use of opioids.
2: So Terence, on that addiction issue, so what sort of red flags do you look out for to see whether you think one of your patients may be becoming addicted to the medication and then what do you do about it, I suppose?
1: Mm. Again, a good question, a very hard question to deal with. The uh, patient usually comes in asking for the opioid. They say, I need my endome, and it becomes a personal friend to them. Uh, they are very hesitant to change. If you say, oh, look, I think you should go and try this other form of therapy or something else, they're very hesitant to change their sort of therapy, and it becomes the only thing that really gives them the, the relief. Uh, that's usually a very big strong signal of the addictive uh, nature of a drug. So when we start hearing those things, I must have this thing now. If I don't have it, um, I've got problems. Or the other gift, our telltale giveaway is that when they come in, they'll come in earlier than the prescribed date. So in other words, you know, a drug, a packet might last in four weeks and they come in at the third week. And it becomes fairly consistent. The third week and then the second week, or it just becomes more frequent. And... Then we start hearing the excuses, I'm going away, I've got a funeral, I've got to go interstate, and I need an extra pack just to help me through. Those are the giveaway signs that we hear it. And that's from our regular patients and not just from the ones that walk off the street and come in and see us and say, I need my end because I left it in New South Wales. And those are difficult because it's very hard to find that background information sometimes when it's, you know, 6 o'clock on a Sunday evening, nobody's open. So it can be a difficult issue. You
2: know, Anthony... We're probably pretty lucky as chiropractors, I reckon, because uh, our safety is pretty good with regards to what we provide. And you think of what Terence has described there, there's there's a bit of a minefield he has to navigate through when we're starting to deal with pretty heavy medications that affect the CNS, the central nervous system. And he's got to be so vigilant each time the person comes in to see... Well, you know, is this going the right way, the wrong way? You know, it's, it's, it's pretty tough.
0: Well, I think as any practitioner has to understand the psychology of the people that they're dealing with. And even at the level that we deal with, which is not obviously the level that um, Terence deals with, we're still thinking about, you know, how can we uh, help them – uh, manage their emotions, uh, consider yep. lifestyle, do all those other things that we know are so important about being well. And being well means, you know, ultimately for most people, uh, less pain, less disability, less discomfort. But this is a whole different ballgame. This is someone who's, uh, you know, uh, has usually very severe pain and, you know, you're considering something that, yes, it, it, this might be very helpful, but, you know, there are risks involved and that's so important to be managed well by, by a good GP.
2: Hey, Terence, you know, from your perspective, I mean, you could have cases of serial cases of these happening back-on-back back consultations. Any advice for practitioners, you know, how, how, how you personally handle that through that because, I mean, you've been personally fantastic to us in different cases we've had in our practice and, you know, we've got in touch with you about some second opinions and, you know, you've responded to us sometimes incredibly at the same time we've sent information to you. And I think we sometimes wonder how do you do it all plus have uh, a disposition which is very friendly and affable. So yeah how do, how do you cope? Um I think what draws me
1: to that is, well, I reckon I, I'm the lucky one in that sense. I get to use a lot of tools which a lot of people don't have, and uh, the what chiropractic's given me is a good sort of starting point to use my brain for a diagnosis in a very in a very sort of mechanical background, and I think part of me is just trying to give back to the profession and trying to make all of us work better in a team because I know that I can't do everything. I know you can't do everything, but I know between the two of us, we can do quite a few more things than each of us could do on loan. So I think trying to maintain that open channel is really, really crucial because my biggest uh, bugbear is practitioners who don't feel comfortable with asking for help Mm. because that doesn't help anybody. So me trying to, to be, you know, like you say, try my best to be approachable and also to be available. I think that's really important because I want you guys to ask the question. That's the most important thing to ask questions so we can manage that patient as best as we can safely in, you know, in whatever situation it is because nobody's out to do a bad job. I think all of us, everybody's doing, trying to do a good job and to do it safely and as best as we can as a community of health practitioners is the, uh, is the goal. And that's what I'm trying to achieve in my local setting, which I've always sort of uh, hopped on as Paul would know. But, you know, I can't change the world. I can certainly change my local neighbourhood.
2: And what about advice about, as a practitioner with really difficult cases, how do you look after yourself and your own well being? so that you can be sharp for the next consultation after you. you may have had some difficult news to deliver to a previous patient or, you know, he- hearing some difficult news from another patient and then coming to front up to the next patient. Can you give uh, our Back Chat listeners and, and Back Chat practitioners, because a lot do listen to the, sh- to the podcast, what you do to help yourself get through that?
1: That's a good question, Paul, I think. You know, um, part of it is when you see a case, or should use the word case, it's not a very good term to use. When you see a patient, they're really sort of a friend you're trying to help. And you might find that that particular issue that you're dealing with is, you know, can be tragic and the news can be very really difficult to give and the outcome might not be good. And you have to do it in a way that doesn't make that patient feel like you're rushing to consult. Doesn't make it them feel like they're not valued because that's the worst thing to feel. You're not valued when you walk out the door. And when you, if you were to face that situation, you have a bad console in the sense that you've got a really heavy one. We call it heart sinker, you know, really heavy one. Um, sometimes I just take a few minutes just to do, look at some notes, read an article in the paper, sort of just to diffuse the situation in my brain before I move on to the next one. And having that break. Is often the, the simplest thing I do to sort of refresh myself and recharge, so that I can see the next patient. It's particularly difficult on a busy day, and um, my receptionists have always joked that I can be able to see and double book my patients. And sometimes I wonder if that's the best thing for me or my patient, because doing that doesn't give me enough time to sort of spend time with one patient, and doesn't give me enough time to recharge. So I think it's a very fine line that any of us would uh, operate in, because the more you do quickly, the more mistakes you tend to make. So being aware of your capabilities and where you walk the line, how you walk the line, I think is probably the most important. And that's different for everybody. So if some people work better on 45-minute consultations, that's fine. And some doctors work better on five-minute consultations, although I would argue that's quite dangerous depending on the consultation. So it really is a case by case doctor by doctor basis, and uh, the best thing to do is to know yourself and how you approach it but the, one of the more important things I try and remember is that the following patient that walks in the door doesn't deserve to take on your baggage that you're going to bring in or that you have in the room already, so you know when they come in they expect to see a fresh person who's willing to take on their their troubles and uh, well that's right I try and give, but I can tell you I've messed up a few times and brought the baggage in and the patients know about it. So I try not to do it, but it does happen, and I think that's just part
0: of being human. Uh, and that's exactly what I was about to say. That um, It is being human, isn't it? Mm. We, are, we are real people. We are, you know, affected by these sorts mm. of things. I think in a, in a chiropractic environment, it's probably a little bit more about... People moving forward and well-being, and people who are just wanting to get the most out of their lives and improve their function. Of course, we have people who have some, you know, severe mm. disabilities and so forth. But it's not the same in this environment, you know, where where that you might just be back to back, all that sort of stuff, and. You do have to cleanse so that you're uh, fresh, ready for the next person, but um, it's not always easy. Now, talking about uh, other aspects, we've sort of talked a bit about the, the, the drug approach. What are your, some other approaches that you do in your practice um, to help people with chronic pain, maybe those that don't involve, for example, uh, opiate medication?
1: What I gather you're alluding to is more of the interventional treatments. Is that right, Anthony? Yes,
0: yeah, absolutely.
1: Right, so with the interventional treatments, there's sort of the bridge between surgical approaches and medications. And it may not be um, that the medication is not working. You might just need a bigger punch, for example. For example, with back pain. Um, If I suspect a particular joint is arthritic and it's the cause of the pain, say, for example, the left L5-S1 joint, facet joint, I might choose to inject the facet joint with an anesthetic steroid combination to prove to myself and at the same time to deliver some therapeutic medication to bring down the inflammation into the joint and watch for the response. And that helps me sort of gauge what sort of problem I'm dealing with. So in other words, I'm saying, look, I reckon that your pain is coming from this facet. The medications don't quite work so well in this case or I haven't responded in the way I would like it to be. Um, I'm going to send you for this injection, which is not surgery, fairly safe still. And that just helps prove to me and you that we're on the right track. And then we can sort of target that treatment a bit better. It also means that we can move on to different types of uh, interventional modalities, such as epidural steroids, um, radiofrequency frequency or neurostimulators. So all very, a very new field of um, pain control med- medication and interventional techniques, which very few people are doing, but more and more so becoming a real option for chronic pain sufferers. So, those are the interventional methods. But, you know, it really does boil down to education of the patient saying, this is what your pain is, and this is the prognostic or the realistic um, future. And once they understand that, they become more accepting, I believe, of uh, their situation and can make choices more radically because often they come to the doctors thinking, Find my problem and fix my problem. Mm. Sometimes it's a hard one because the problem is there to stay, and it's about managing the problem, just yeah. like you would manage a patient with eczema or with asthma or chronic low back pain from misuse, for example.
0: So, say for example, in the uh, instance of a facet injection, are you doing these within your practice, and are they under ultrasound or, or uh, other form of guidance?
1: The facet injections, specifically for the lumbar spine or the neck. Um, are done under radiology clinic. Yep. So a radiologist would do it typically with CT guidance yep. and, or fluoroscopic guidance where the needle is placed very accurately into a very specific joint that has been identified by the practitioner. The types of joint injections that I would do are the joints which are very accessible to my hands. And that would mean um, there's no question about it, such as the shoulder The the knees, the thumbs, joints are very close to the surface which I can palpate, feel and I can actually get a a result within 10 minutes and the patient says, yep, I feel better with this. That's the nature of the joint injections that I would do. But um, if it's a deep joint injection like the hip joint, then it would be definitely under CT ultrasound guidance because accuracy is really important. You don't want to stick a needle into somebody with a second guess of thinking, yeah, I think I got the joint. So you want to be pretty accurate.
2: So Terence, when it comes to prescribing pain medications for your patients, after a period of time, how do you help them come off those or stop their medications? What sort of tips or advice can you give there?
1: The most important tip and advice I can give for that is the education of the patient in regards to what signs we're looking for. Let me give you an example. A patient has um, a slip disc, for example. It's a very painful condition. Typically, it takes three to six weeks of uh, medications to sort of calm the pain down. And I would tell the patient to make a diary if I can. Um, and the diary would tell me, you know, the activities that trigger the pain, the frequency, the intensity of the pain. And I would use that as my baseline. Now, sometimes the patient would say, I've been having this pain for three, three days already, and it's really intense. And I'll say, okay, you tell me what, scores, what sort of uh, activities trigger. And they'll say, oh, I can't even get out of the car. I can't sleep for more than two hours. And so that becomes my baseline. And once I have my baseline, which I note down in the file, the patient then goes on a course of medications. And as they come back and respond to the medications, I'll say, okay, so how are you sleeping now, for example? And if it's getting better, then I'll use it as a sign of encouragement and tell the patient, look, you're doing really well. The pain, the pain is getting under control. The condition seems to be getting better let's start thinking about cutting down your pain, because this is where I want you to be at, you know, for example, six weeks. So we move with the patient, but the patient has something to attach themselves to from the beginning. So they have an idea of the improvement that they're getting. And they also have an idea of where you're leading them to. I think that's what patients want. They want to know, they're not saying, here's a medication, go home, take it, and I'll see you in two weeks and we'll see what happens. I think they want to know that the, the doctor has an understanding of their pain, has shown them what it is, and is able to say, "This is where we're going to go, and I'm going to follow you through the process, and we're going to decrease the pain medication as required."
2: And I reckon it would be really difficult when you inherit other patients.
1: It's uh, yeah, it's really <laughs> difficult because <laughs> yeah. they come in and they didn't have that talk talking to because uh, it's possible that the GPs that they had weren't aware of the nature of the pain or weren't uh, in that sort of doctor which explained things, for example. So inheriting a patient of that nature, you have to sort of untangle a bit of beliefs, uh, untangle a bit of uh, maybe disillusionment sometimes with the condition that's never getting better, and then sort of encourage and motivate them that this condition will get better if it's that nature of the condition and uh, spur them on. And part of it, you know, the medical job and all of us as self-practitioners is uh, motivational. And I think we, we all, in that sense, are you know, salesmen of uh, a certain caliber. We we're trying to sell advice and sell sell an idea.
0: Uh, Terence, that's some of the information you shared with us today has been absolutely uh, fantastic and uh, been quite insightful for our back chat listeners to really understand about chronic pain and what options are out there going from a sort of a a functional sort of, you know, chiropractic slash physiotherapy approach through to, Medication uh, options and their, you know, pitfalls, uh, through to um, other interventions, you know, before jumping right into the surgery, uh, surgery basket. But um, in addition to uh, understanding about uh, chronic pain, uh, we also want to understand a little bit about you as uh, our expert today, and and in particular, if there's been a particular pivotal experience or something that really happened that was impactful in your life that put you down the chiropractic slash medical doctor path.
1: Well, I think the most impactful uh, experience was when I was working as a chiropractor. And uh, I had a really educated gentleman, very highly intelligent gentleman, and he had chronic, severe lower back pain. Um, he had a tragic accident falling off a, a sort of bridge of a certain height and fractures back in a number of places and had to be uh, surgically repaired by putting. Um, bolts and rods into his spine, basically fusing his spine, his low back. And after that, his uh, pain was really still very severe. And it uh, had been severe for a number of years. I think it was more than 10 years before he came to me. And when he came to me, um, we, you know, I looked into it a bit more and took his CTs and MRIs to our chiropractic radiologists, and you, you both will know, Lindsay Rose, uh, yes. who's passed away, mm. and got their advice as well, and uh, it seemed to them that the, one of the screws was put a bit, bit too deep and was probably compressing one of the nerves. So not only did he have the pain from fracture pain, but possibly having a compression of a nerve for an object, which is not the plan. Um, so, you know, after trying to tell the surgeon, hey, look, what do you think? Can we take the screw out? You know, After a period of going back and forth, the surgeon finally took the screw out. But I think by the time, with the number of years he had the screw in, that neuropathic type pain was well and truly entrenched and uh, he continued to have pain, whether it was from incident or not, nobody really knows. Um, what happened then was the pain got so severe and the patient uh, attempted suicide a number of times. And... On his, I think, third or fourth attempt, finally succeeded in uh, ending his life, um, to the sadness of his family. And I think that really taught me a very uh, powerful um, sort of lesson. And that lesson is always try and go back and find out where the pain's coming from. It doesn't matter that you're doing everything again. It doesn't matter that the best minds have been on it. It's your mind. It's your eyes. Your education. Your take on it. And if you find nothing, you find nothing. But if you find something, you can advocate for the patient. And I always wonder whether I advocated enough for him. And at the time, I didn't have the medical knowledge I have now. I was a chiropractor in uh, medical school. And I didn't have the knowledge that I have now, and so I always wonder, could I have done more? But you know, I've always said from then on, you know, this should these sort of things shouldn't happen. But they're the hardest, really, the hardest. Uh, Type of patients to deal with because they are exceedingly complex. Complex from everything that they've gone through in the past, and to the medications that they are currently taking. So it does take time. It takes a lot of effort, and uh, there's not much reward um, out of it other than a happy patient and a satisfied doctor. I think.
0: Well, a very happy patient and a very satisfied doctor in some cases. But you're quite right. These, you know, these some of these. Uh, cases are are extremely concerning, and that was a you know a really tragic story. Uh, but but like you said, a lesson to be learned from it, and that drove you forward. So that was uh, so that
2: was terrific. Yeah, and we, and we start this podcast a bit complicated, didn't we? I mean, we as intro this is uh, dealing with complicated cases, and I mean, you know, Terence has shared a a, a pivotal, impacting experience, which is. Um, You know, been telling on his career, and you know when we all can take stock of, and always think about patients when we we see our patients when when we're thinking if something's not right, just to be aware of that and be on that radar, to be attuned to that, and and uh, attend to those specific needs. Terence, can I just come back now in regards some take-home messages because we've talked about a lot of different things today. It's been fantastic. Can you give our back chat listeners? three take-home messages?
1: Yeah, sure, I'd be happy to. Um, Take-home messages, which I would share with all practitioners, um, always try and get an accurate diagnosis. The diagnosis is key. The diagnosis might not be one thing. It might be a complex of uh, different pathologies coming together, not forgetting the psychological impact that the patient has from chronic long-term pain or different types of pain. So the diagnosis is really important and As um, health practitioners, having the diagnosis correct helps to point towards the right therapies. And if it's complex, it might involve different uh, health providers. So it helps point to the right places where we can get started. And when you get started with different practitioners who are like-minded, you often start to come up with pretty good ideas of how to manage a patient well. You get different ideas because, like I said, nobody knows the one thing and everybody just helping to give the two cents worth into a pot always is quite useful. The second thing I would say is uh, it can take multiple attempts at different therapies, give each one a good attempt. And remember that a good practitioner should always be on the side of the patient. If the patient tells you this is not working or this practitioner is not doing the right thing for me, listen carefully, try and seek out why that's the case. And, encourage patients to stick with a good trial of therapy because it's not until you really trial it that you really don't know and i i've been uh, sometimes you know I, I try doing my own musculoskeletal trigger points for patients and they say oh, i've been to this physio i've been to this person i've tried this and that and i go okay but look i want to do it my way which might involve certain muscle activation techniques for example and uh, i would like to give it a trial of six therapies i try and hold them to it because even though I know it's been tried somewhere else, I don't know that practitioner, nor do I know what they did. I mean, what I try and do is I say, did they do this particular muscle? Did they stretch it this way? And if they say no, I say, well, why don't we try it this way? And so try and stick with the uh, type of therapy is really important. If it was a practitioner down the road like Paul, i give him a call and say, hey, Paul, what did you do? I don't do the same thing and rehash the same uh, uh, problem again. So get in contact with the practitioner and try to always advocate for your patient so that you understand uh, what they have and what you're trying to get at with other doctors as well. And I guess the last thing I'd say is beware of therapies that haven't been proven. And this includes medical therapies. There are a lot of uh, therapies out there that are marketed for knee pain, for example, using uh, plasma injections or miraculous treatments. Um, They don't necessarily work or they may have very low sort of evidence base for it. So medical therapies or other therapies, for example, when a patient's in pain, they often, I mean, we're talking genuine patients here, they're often quite desperate and they reach out for any therapy and become quite um, vulnerable to scams and um, different, uh, you know, latest ideas, so to speak, and different offers and, you know, I've seen patients spend anywhere from $2,000 to $40,000 on therapies that have been uh, ineffective. And if you know they come in and they talk to us, we will tell them these therapies are very likely not to work. But if the patient chooses after to go for these therapies, then you know, at least they've had our sort of advice. And when they come back and say, look, doc, it didn't work. And we'll say, yeah, I know it didn't work. So let's try and do something else for your pain. Let's see if we can get it under control. But often it's because they're so desperate that they are trying these therapies. So it's not kind of their fault but you know i would always say talk to the doctors make sure you understand what you're getting yourself into first so that would be my sort of technical messages for health practitioners who deal with this sort of thing
2: well anthony medications pitfalls addiction other interventions ceasing medications natural care we've talked a lot of things with dr Han in the 31 minutes and 50 odd seconds we've got on our time at the minute. What do you think?
0: Yeah, very good podcast, and, you know, there are options out there, but uh, buyer beware.
2: Bye beware. Thank you, Terence. Pleasure. And if you'd like to actually meet Terence or see Terence, he's located at the Vermont Health Centre as well as the Wadding Clinic, which are both linked practices that work together and serve the community seven days a week. There are doctors there with a variety of interests, and so you can check vermonthealthcare.com.au, and or nutterwaddingclinic.com.au, respectively. Thank you for listening to Backchat. To stay abreast with updates on Backchat, please go to our Facebook page, www.facebook.com forward slash Backchat podcast. All relevant website links for today's podcast will be on our Backchat podcast Facebook page. If you like this show, please leave a five-star rating on iTunes. We leave you with one thought. Be the best of what you do, and you will grow and inspire others around you. We look forward to catching up with you on our next Back Chat podcast.
0: This has been a production of TheWellnessCouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on Facebook.com forward slash TheWellnessCouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives